0: My covenant to you is at 7:45. One way or another, we're done. So that those of you who need to get somewhere can get somewhere. And if there's guys at your table that they don't have anywhere to get, you can still leave them at 7:45 if you got to go. So that's good news. And uh, if you're like me, I like to know when things are ending. If you're ever like in the church service and it feels like, hey, wait, whoa, 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 we're not wrapping up, and there's the right rhythm of time. If you get nervous, just know I'm nervous with you. So that's all. That's all good. So. Um, it is good to be together today and as Michael said you know a piece of this that's that's very important is the, the teaching side where we dive into God's word and have something of substance to talk about and then a, 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 of importance as well is the conversation that takes place the relationship that takes place as guys we need each other and particularly we need other guys that say yeah I'm going to go on this journey to Together, I want mean, to. I want to learn what it means to be a God honoring man. I want to. I really want to be the kind of man that is admirable, not for my ego, but so that I'm just the right kind of guy, character wise and otherwise. And uh, not every man wants that. And it's a free country. And if a guy did not want that and he wants to play around and be a boy his whole life, we know a lot of guys like that. That you're like, grow up, man. Those guys, I love them. I respect them. I just don't want to do too much life with those guys. I want to do life with guys that go, I don't want to take this seriously. As I get older, I want to be the kind of guy that other people can look up to. And I don't, I'm pretty sure that that's why you're here too, is that when you kind of fast forward down the line, you think, I want to be a mature man. I don't want to be the guy that's, that acts like a kid his whole life. A, I want to be fun. I don't want to be so straight-laced that I'm no fun. But I, don't, I want to be taken seriously. When if, if, you're, if you're married, you're, you're the kind of guy that says, I want my wife to feel secure and enjoy the relationship with me and not feel like she's dragging along some toddler or some guy that only wants one thing from her. Like, we want to be mature men. That's why, that's why we're here. And just as a reminder, that's the challenge of being a man. Because in our culture today, what we tell men is act like kids uh, or, or just sort of kowtow to everybody else. And there is not an agreed upon concept of what it means to be a man. And so last week when we were here, we talked about the different qualities of a man. And uh, if you weren't here, you can listen to the podcast where we cover that. But if you just remember, the five qualities were uh, a man, a, a mature, a guy who has it together is a leader, he's a brother, he's a warrior, he's a lover, he's noble. And so today what we're going to do and over the next handful of weeks, we're just going to unpack one at a time because we just kind of glance by it. And the truth is, for all of these, we could spend 10 weeks on each one of these. We could spend a year on all of these. If you just, like today we're going to talk about leader, but if you go into a bookstore on and look for titles that say leader in them, you will be in the, if you can, if you can find a bookstore you'll be in that leader section forever. If you go to Amazon and type in leader, there are more resources than you could absorb in a lifetime. So we're just going to dive into a section of it. And just as a reminder, last week what we said a leader is, is uh, what it means to be a leader is driven by a compelling vision. A leader sees what is right and inspires others through word and deed, regardless of cost. So a leader is somebody, they have a vision for life. And they know from that vision what is right and what's wrong. They're committed to doing what's right. And in that commitment, other, other people, men, women, kids, co-workers, neighbors, friends, they're inspired. And, and that inspiration might cost you. That commitment might cost you. There might be people who don't want to be your friend anymore. There might be friends... People who actually persecute you or try to hold your career back, but you don't care about the cost. Through what you say and what you do, you're going to be remain. You're going to remain committed to that vision. That's what a leader is. And last week we also talked about that there's extremes with these qualities. And each week as we unpack this, we'll look at it. that a leader, if he is indifferent, becomes an advocator. His his like mantras. I don't care. I don't care. Now, there are plenty of things I don't care about. If my wife says, where would you like to go to dinner, I don't care. Unless she recommends a place with fish. That's disgusting. But, but I'm mostly indifferent about certain things. If it comes to we're making some travel plans for the fall, hey, where would you like to stay? hotel. Should we get a, one that's very good or should we get one that's superb? I forget what the Expedia terminology is. I'm like, I don't care. I just don't want bugs. That's all. If it's if it's a, and I and I would I would like a free breakfast, so I am not an abdicator of responsibility. That's okay. But if a, if you're called upon and the eyes are upon you and there's a decision that needs to be made, and you're like oh ah, then you're an abdicator. On the other hand, there's the extreme kind of leader who says, I lead everything everywhere. If we're ordering pizza, it's my way or the highway. I will end a friendship over pineapple, which actually, if you're going to end a friendship, do it over pineapple. Uh, (laughs) But a tyrant is, uh, we make light of that, but a tyrant is no fun at all. And So as I mentioned, over the next five weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into these, but we're going to look at one of the historic characters in the Old Testament who's one of the most famous leaders of all time. And he's famous for not getting it right all the time, but sort of uh, the overall trend of his life is getting it right. And his faithfulness to God in the midst of sinning and messing up and breaking down and getting it back together again. He truly is one of the most remarkable leaders. And his name is David. He was the great king of the United uh, Kingdom of Israel. There are only three kings of the United Kingdom. Saul, David and Solomon, and then after that it's all split up. And David's really the zenith. He's the high point. He's the guy in the line of David. Even when Jesus comes, he's in the line of David. People look back at David again. Not because he was perfect. We'll talk about some of the pock marks. But we are going to look at David in all of these characteristics. And today we're going to look at the quality and characteristics of David when it comes to being a leader. And the context of the story. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can go to 1 Samuel 18, and we're going gonna to bounce around 1 Samuel a little bit. But in, uh, in 1 Samuel, uh, it says, uh, it's, this is on the heels. In fact, in another couple weeks, we're going to go back in time. We're going to bounce around his timeline, not to confuse you, but it just fits with what we're trying to do. And so uh, this story occurs after the famous Goliath incident. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard of David and Goliath and the slingshot. And Goliath gets knocked down, and then David cuts his head off. It's a great scene in military history. And, uh, and so in this, uh, in this incident, David goes from unknown kid who just stumbles upon the battlefield to the most famous warrior in the nation. And so everything shifts and goes wrong, but also is going to be revelatory David's approach to leadership with a song. It all hinges on a song. And the song is uh, in verse 7. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. It's a little ditty. David and the warriors are coming back from battle and the women are out on the streets and they got palms and they're exuberant because it's not the Philistines coming to kidnap them and take them back as captives, forcing them into some awful thing. No, 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 the, the men are back. And why are the men back? Because David won, the kid warrior won. And they start singing. And what the historians tell us is that it's an antiphon. It's like a chant-like song. Like, I grew up in church. Some of you also grew up in church. And in little kid church, we did this antiphon. It was hallelujah, 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 praise ye the Lord. And they would, and if you grew up probably Baptist, you probably heard that one. There's some other traditions that did it, too. For all I know, Catholics did it. I don't know. But but, uh, but they would get this side of the room. that would go, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And then they would turn to the next side, and they'd stand up, praise ye the Lord. And they'd go back and forth. And when you're like, five, this is the greatest song in the history of the church. <laughs> it's dynamic. In fact, I think we should probably bring it back. Right now, Chris Tomlin is writing some lyrics to go with it. That's a Chris Tomlin joke for those of you who know who he is. But uh, Samuel tells us he's the narrator, if you will. He's the historian. He tells us it says um, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine Goliath, the women came out from the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and joyful songs and timbrels and lyres and just basically trashy musical instruments they made in their yard. Uh, no, they were great musical instruments. I, I shouldn't call them trashy. That's not nice. Uh, and as they dance, they sing. Saul has slain his thousands, and David is tens of thousands. And if you're a healthy leader, if you're Saul and you have it together and you're mature, then you just kind of grin. You just go, "Yeah, the kid did all right. He works for me. I got the star. Uh, I got the star warrior on my team. That worked out." That worked out really well if you're a healthy leader in fact what's interesting is the experts on the ancient language it, it doesn't it doesn't appear that the song was meant to be a contrast like saul he he took out a thousand, but David took out tens of thousands actually what the what the ancient scholars say is that it was more like the women would line up and one group would say Saul and another would say David and they'd go back, Saul, David, Saul, David, killed us thousands, killed us tens of thousands. In other words, it wasn't that David killed tens of thousands, it was together, the like combination of them together, they were fierce. That was what a lot of historians think was going on there. And, and Saul's response is quite telling to Saul's approach to leadership and to the interior of his soul. But it also, by the context and the following stories and what's not said, we learn something about David in here too and his approach to leadership. David, David doesn't seem to take this to heart. He, do, he doesn't seem to go, that's right, ladies, I'm the man. He doesn't suddenly have more swagger in his step and he isn't getting... Uh, disrespectful to Saul. There's no incident where he is anything less than humble and submissive to Saul and all the surrounding stuff. But what we do have is Saul's response. It says Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. If you underline things, that's the one to underline. Displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. And what it seems is that when the song was sung, Saul didn't just hear that song, but he heard the words of Samuel, who was the spiritual leader in the kingdom at the time. Because in just a handful of months, maybe a year earlier, there was a very terse interaction between Samuel and Saul. Saul had a job to do, he didn't do it, and Samuel is sent by God to confront Saul. And my hunch is, is that when the song was sung, Saul heard a different verbiage. He heard different words. If you just flip back 1 Samuel 15, uh, just verses 27 to 29, it says, The Lord, this is Samuel to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you, who is the glory of Israel, who, uh, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind for he is not a human being, that he should change his mind. And so this was only, this was on the, was on the heels of the prior battle. Saul disobeyed God, God's going to discipline Saul, and he says, look, you blew it, you're fired, I'm finding a neighbor of yours who's better. And so Saul's on the lookout. He's on the lookout for a neighbor. And what's his constant question? Is he better than me? Is this guy better than me? Is this guy better than me? And then all of a sudden, the song erupts. Saul has slain his thousands, and David has sends of thousands. It was like, ding, 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 ding. I found the neighbor who's better than me. At least they think he's better than me. And it says that from, from that time on, once that song became the, the hit song in the nation of Israel, that from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David and if you um, fill in the blanks, here's your first fill in the blank. There's a principle of being a leader. Never take praise and popularity too seriously. And I just put in brackets. I don't know you can write it, uh, or criticism for that matter. You know, if you're, if you're called upon to be a leader, you're, you're going to get an inordinate amount of praise, and you'll have a level of popularity. I, some of you know what this is about. You work in an office arrangement or a company arrangement, and you get promoted, and suddenly new best friends show up. It's the weirdest thing. People that did, disregarded you before, didn't make eye contact, or if they did, they just give you a head nod, and all of a sudden they think you're simply charming, laugh at your jokes, you know, ha- want to hang out in the break room, and and you don't take that too seriously. You don't look down on those people either. You don't go, wow, what a sycophant. You 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 just You just don't let that come into your heart and take over. But you also don't take the criticism. In Saul, Saul took everything as criticism. In fact, earlier, there's this, in this whole interaction where Samuel, let's just go back in time, and I hope I'm not too confusing on timeline stuff here, but back when Saul was being confronted by Samuel, this is before the battle against Goliath, before the song, before David's Mr. Popularity, Samuel says to Saul, in that same context, he says, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you to be king over Israel. See, it was in the context that when he's confronted, Saul blames the soldiers around him. He blames Samuel for being late to a party. He's blaming, blaming, blaming. But what he's doing, he's not taking any responsibility. It's not my responsibility. I, I... I couldn't do anything about it. I was, a, I was a hapless victim. I was a victim of your schedule, Samuel, and I was a victim of these guys who kept telling me, hey, when are we going to get going? When are we going to get going? So I, I just had to do it. And Samuel goes, you're the king, man. Why do you think inside you're not the king? Why do you think you're not the one that's put in this area of responsibility? And that's meant to be a massive contrast in the book of Samuel with David. Because while Saul, when he examined the interior of his life, he saw himself as quite small, David, it was quite different. Now what we don't have is David ever going, you know what I think of myself? I think, I'm amazing. None of that. We don't have anything like that from David. We have the opposite from David, humility and self-sacrifice. But what we do have is God's assessment of David. Because after Saul's been fired... Before the battle with Goliath, Samuel is sent by God to anoint somebody new to take over Saul's position. This is going to be the leader of the nation of Israel. And so Samuel is sent to Bethlehem, and he's sent to a pretty successful farmer, and he is uh, told to parade all the sons of the successful rancher farmer in front of him. And first guy comes, and he is a specimen. I mean, he's the right height, the right build. He's just got the right beard length. Everything is lined up. And Samuel, in this conversation privately with God, goes, this must be the guy. And God goes, uh, "Not that's not the guy. And he's like, okay, well, he must have someone better. And someone better comes on. And they run through a successive of brothers that apparently are all lookers, are all strong, healthy, vibrant guys. And each one, God goes, that's not him. That's not him. That's not him. And then finally, like, hey, you're out of sons. you got somebody? And that's when David comes in from the field. And this is God's assessment. It said, um, but the Lord said to Samuel, this is 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. This is in reference to David's handsome studly brothers. The Lord does not look at the things people look at people look at the outward appearance but the lord looks on the heart. And so when you're thinking about this really what you could put a hyphen and say you know a leader leads from the heart. How do you not take praise, and popularity and criticism and all that stuff too seriously? Well you got to have it right here. There has to be an inner stability, there has to be a heart level stability that God defines in your life, and that you define yourself by God in your life. So that, this is um, this is principle number one, that you don't take that criticism too seriously. There's a second principle. Uh, this is principle number two. A, a wise leader has more reverence for God than he has fear of others. He has more reverence for God than fear of others. Now this one's just real settling in our culture today, because there's a whole lot of reason to fear others, be concerned about what others saying. And a lot of leaders now kind of tiptoe around. There's a lack of boldness. Or if there's boldness, it's coupled with rudeness. And so it doesn't show that reverence. But a, a wise leader, the kind of leader that's an honorable leader, it, they have a reverence for God. It, it says this in uh, 1 Samuel, going back to 18. This is back now to the popular song years. Saul hates David years. It says, um, when, uh, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David, and his daughter, Michael, loved David, who was David's wife, Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. Now, Saul had reason to be concerned about David. He already knew he was fired, and he knew a better neighbor was coming, and it was pretty obvious to anybody around, later even Jonathan, Saul's son's like, David, you're going to be king someday, not me, you, it's going to be awesome. Like, when, when the whole nation, including the king's household, knows this, Saul had a reason to be nervous. But what's fascinating is, given the fact that Saul realized that the Lord was with David, you, here's a good idea, guys. If you ever have a, another fellow in your life and you're like, the Lord is with him, don't stand against him and try to hurt him or take him out. That's just a bad idea. You're not up against the dude, you're up against God. If that guy, if you're like, he is blessed of God, when he speaks, he speaks like an angel. I hate him so much. You are on the wrong side of that equation. It's okay to have a healthy, manly envy, like, man, I wish I had that, you know? And then, it's, and then let that inspire you to make some changes in your life. But if you stand opposed to someone that's doing God's work or has God's blessing, you're in trouble. Insult of all people, the Lord had called him at one time. The Lord had anointed him. He had the power of God at one time in him. Of all people, he had no excuse to have this sort of an attitude that he was going to face off against David. And it, and it really reminds me, there's a passage of Scripture. Just write this down. This is uh, Colossians three, twenty-three and 24. I'm not going to talk about it, but this is a passage some point today to read. The gist of it is this. Paul says, when you work, work is under the Lord, not for the people around you. And why that passage is relevant here is that a a wise leader, in their reverence for God, what they're going to do is they're going to to be very, very aware of the spiritual reality around them. So when they're doing their work, they're going to do the very best work they can do to honor the Lord. If Saul had taken that approach, he would have reigned very differently as a king. He wouldn't have gotten pink slipped. But that is uh, for you to just write down and look at later. For the sake of time, I'm just going to dismiss it and let, uh, let that be. Principle number three, a wise leader practices healthy boundaries. Thankfully, I don't have to say a whole lot about this. If you were in church on Sunday, Marty actually talked about boundaries. So that's perfect. And you can go back and you can watch his message. But boundaries... Boundaries is simply this. Uh, every one of us has an area we're responsible for. Think of it like a yard with fence around it. And there's a gate, and we can open the gate and invite a friend in to help us in our yard. Got an issue, open the gate. Now, if a friend uh, doesn't like, even understand that concept and is constantly climbing over the fence telling you where to rearrange things in your life, that's when you probably need like a pit bull in your yard. Chew that friend up. No, that's when you're like, hey buddy, my yard. Your yard's over there. You stay on your side of the fence. We're friends. I'll open the gate from time to time. This isn't one of the times. That's the gist of boundaries. Like I said, you can read it. Now, What? how does this play out in David and in, uh, Saul's interchange? It said, um, It said. but uh, uh, this is in uh, 1 Samuel 19, 9 through 12. But an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And I don't have time to unpack the theology of all that. It's just an evil spirit that comes on Saul. And he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. This is... You know, I sit in my house with my remote, but, uh, you know, if you're a warrior, chieftain, king, and tribal, ancient Israel, probably you've got weapons around you. You never know when, a like, a fight's going to break out, and so he's got his spear in his house, in his hand, and while David was playing the lyre, like a little, uh, like a little uh, mandolin-type thing, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. I mean, you imagine you're, like, singing, just trying to calm Saul down, and all of a sudden, you know, I mean, and David is smart. Um, David eluded him as Saul drove the spear in the So he not only does this, but he tries to pin him with it. So Saul's out of control here. That night, David made good his escape. Probably a good idea. And then it says in uh, in verse eleven. Uh, Saul sent men to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning, but Michael, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window, and he fled, and he escaped. And what what does this have to do with boundaries? It is simple. There are some stages, there are some interactions, there are some times where you have to stop and engage and interact, and there are some times where you just got to get out. Now, a coward is always running away, and a leader doesn't practice cowardice and constantly run away. But what we see in David, the leader right here, is he's not going to turn every interaction into a confrontation and into a fight. David's a pretty strong warrior. Odds are on David's favor at this point. But if David kills Saul in the palace, that's not pretty. And David had such high regard and reverence for the Lord, he wasn't going to take matters into his own hands. And So he's going to let God deal with all that. But in practicing good boundaries, there are times to you go, you know what? Your psychological, your drama, not my drama. Your problems, not my problems. Most of us aren't going to face this fear. If someone does try to literally kill you at work, leave. You know, like get out of there. Get a new job, all right? If they're trying to literally, if they try to kill you with a spear, sword, gun, or otherwise, find a new employer, all right? But most of us aren't going to deal with that. But we're going to have drama around us, and there are times where we, where we work on that, and there are times where we don't. This whole boundary talk reminds me. In fact, every time someone talks about boundaries, it reminds me of something very real in my life. I grew up in kind of a rough and tumble inner city area, a bunch of small little houses packed <coughs> together. And we had a my dad worked night shift at GM, and there was this uh, there was this neighbor down the way, and and he didn't practice boundaries at all. He knew my my dad worked the night shift, and he would just walk right into our house. He would it drove my mom nuts. She would tell my dad and my dad would never go down to the neighbor. Like if a neighbor did that to my wife, I would go down and be like, I work at a church, do it again, I'll kill you. you know? <laughs> I love the Lord, you won't walk again. Uh, and uh, that's what I always tell, you know, like with, uh, with I have two daughters, and I'm like, you know, as they as they start dating, I'm like, you know what? I am not afraid to kill a person who touches my daughter. I can do ministry inside and outside of prison. We have a wonderful, we have a wonderful ministry at Joe Hart. great—they're not bad accommodations—and I could do that if, uh, if for the right cause. But, but anyhow, this neighbor—he would just walk in. Well, well, um, that particular summer—and I'm like just a little guy—that particular summer, my cousin Dan, who is much older, 6'2", muscular. Uh, in mechanics, uh, he was working for Toyota at the time, learning to be a master mechanic. He was a big, hulking dude. He came to live with us while he was doing some coursework in Lansing, and, uh, and the neighbor didn't know it. And so we're all at the dinner table, and the neighbor all of a sudden door flies open. Neighbor walks in. Dan didn't know who the guy was or why he was walking in the house, but Dan steps up and he's towering over this dude, and he just he marches that guy to the front door, puts him on the step, and goes, ring the bell. That guy never just walked in the house again. And some, for some of us, it's you know run when the spear comes, and for some of us, we go, "You stay on the porch right now." And a good leader practices those those boundaries. All right, let's um, I got, I, I uh, let me make sure I, I'm uh, get to our fourth point here. Uh, principle number four here. A wise leader operates from principles that transcend circumstances and (coughs) opportunity. There is a, this is a good one. I I love, this is one of my favorite David stories, and you'll get it in a moment here. But think about this, is sometimes people um, develop their principles based upon their circumstances and opportunities. In other words, their principles are very, very fluid. So it, it isn't what's right, it's what's expedient, it's what works. I hop on this opportunity and a wise leader has these operational principles. We could say biblical principles and say, I decide what's right and wrong, not because I decided it, but because God decided it. He didn't even take, my, he didn't even take my, my voice into consideration. He just made the rules. My job is to understand what are those principles that, that he actually laid out because they're good, they're eternal, they're life-giving, they don't cause harm. So if I'm on board with those principles, that's transcending of the circumstances and the opportunity. If the circumstances and the opportunities are awesome, I've got a real sure footing. I'm not going to let it go to my head and become a jerk and arrogant. On the other hand, if the circumstances are challenging and the opportunities are diminished, I'm not going to become desolate. I'm not going to attack other people. I'm not going to become a complainer. The principles that guide my life, they are above all the stuff that's happening in my life. Does that make sense? All right, so here's the situation. This is a good one. It's a real guttural guy one. 1 Samuel uh, 24 so it says, um, after uh, Saul had returned from pursuing the Philistines, see, Saul now is pinging back and forth. On the frontier, he's fighting the Philistines, and then when, that, when they're subdued, he runs, and he's trying to chase down David because he hates David. And then, then the Philistine thing will erupt, and he'll go fight the Philistines, and then he's back fighting David again. He's back and forth. It's a very tribal culture at that point. Think of it more tribes. Don't think of it as English monarchy and castles. <coughs> think of it more like warrior chieftains. And so chieftain Saul it says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he said, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. You know, that really seems like a good use of your military to chase down David. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cove was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. See why This this is a really good story. He went in to relieve himself. Now, just for the record, the scriptures can become more guttural at times, but they're like, ladies read this thing. So, in Hebrew, it doesn't say relieve himself. Uh, Because he wouldn't, if you're going to, we're men. If you got to pee, right? You're not like, guys, I'm going to have a little privacy over here in the cave, right? I mean, you live with the warriors. You're like, hey, I got to go. He went in the cave to do a sit-down job. You know, this is uh, this requires a little more privacy, concentration. That's why he's going in the cave. I just want that clear because the rest of the story doesn't make a whole lot of sense if he's just going in there to 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 stand, do a stand-up job. And so it says um, it says uh, he came to the sheep pens. Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. So this is a, like he, Dave, uh, Saul's using it as a latrine, and David's hiding back in there. And the men said, this is the day the Lord spoke to you and he said to you, I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And David crept up unnoticed and he cut off, he could kill Saul there, but instead he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, which tells you the level of concentration Saul's in at that moment, (laughs) am I right? Because I, you know, there are many instances where I'm going to the bathroom, but, you know, if a fly comes in, I'm going to notice it, a dude and a sword. I'm like, hey, 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 you know, this is... So Saul, I don't know if he had too much dairy and cheese and was bound up. I do not know why. I don't know if it was loud or noisy or what. I don't mean to be gross, but, it you know, this is one of those great stories in the Bible that's there for our enjoyment. And I do think when it was being written there like this, people will laugh over this, you know. We don't laugh enough about some of the stuff that's in the Bible, but this is just a good one. And so, but here's what's interesting. Um, uh the men say words to David that God said to David that's nowhere in Scripture, which leads us to believe that God didn't say these words to David, but they were putting words in God's mouth. Didn't, remember, the Lord said he was going to deliver an enemy in your hands. You can do anything you want with him, which doesn't really sound like something God would say. God, I mean, that really doesn't say. God doesn't, he, he'll tell people what to do. But he's like, he never was like, torture them if you want to. He never says that, ever. So that seems very unlikely. You can always, this is just for free. It's not in your notes. You can always find friends that will misquote God or take certain passages out of context or, or quote some Christian song they heard or something. And they're like, this is life. And you're like, no, it's not. This is where the principles have to be rooted in something deeper. And so what's fascinating, it says, afterward, David David uh, was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe. Saul's trying to kill him, and he just cuts off a little piece of the rope. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men. I mean, they're with swords. They're ready to go. They're like, You brought back cloth. We're going to go shish And he rebukes the men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And later, later it becomes revealed. And then Saul, Saul is driven and tossed about by every breeze that hits the atmosphere, and so Saul like, oh, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't do that, and then he's back at David again, but but the reason that that's a good story that pr- that shows us this, David, op- if David didn't operate from principles, was there an opportunity? Oh, yes, there was an opportunity. But David, David said, the Lord has put someone in place. It is not my job to knock him out of place. The Lord has not told me to take him out. The Lord's only told me I'm going to be king. The Lord hasn't told me take the throne. The Lord's told me to wait. That was evidently the message that David had gotten. And David was patient and David was obedient. And so for all of us, I think this is a really important one. If you only remember one of them, I think this is the one that we should remember, which is we have to identify and operate from a principal type of leadership that doesn't move with time. And guys, this is one of the most exasperating parts of our culture right now. It, it fascinates me that, um, and I'm, I, mean, I mean nothing political by this, and I, I, I uh, um, Sad Night Live hired a new uh, comedian and then promptly fired him when it came out that he had said some very racially charged things in a stand-up routine. And uh, the irony is, if you know anything about most of the cast, former and present of Sad Night Live, the difference is, is this guy had a clip shown. I grew up child of the 1980s, and I do not recommend watching Eddie Murphy's stand-up routines, but if you want racially insensitive, sexually insensitive, wildly inappropriate, just generally any of his stand-up routines of that era would would get you in a lot of trouble now. Our culture used to laugh over making fun of you name the group, not that long ago, and now we're like, Oh, that's ghastly! How would someone even think that's funny? Everyone thought that was funny. Everyone did for the longest time. All of a sudden, we've got virtues and morals about certain things—not not many things, but certain things. You know, all of a sudden, our culture—I can't believe someone would dress up like that for Halloween. That's terrible. I hope they don't find my costume uh, pictures. You know, that, true—that's the culture has lost its ever-loving mind and will continue to do so. And as men of God, what we can do is we can go, like there's principles. They don't move. They don't shift. We can root ourselves in those things, and we can rest on that kind of foundation. doesn't matter what the circumstances are in my life. All right. I've talked enough, and it's your tables, like I said, I will monitor the time. I didn't give you a lot of time to talk. I apologize. It was Michael Foster's fault because he started late. <laughs> uh, he'll do better next time. But, uh, and uh, it's, it, just as a reminder, Text a buddy and uh, let them know Man Challenge is here for them and invite uh, invite a friend. That's, that's, you know, the word of mouth will be the thing that helps the right guys get to this group. So, all right, have your discussion, and then I'll let you know at 745.